Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather here to open up your word and for the Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts. And we pray, Father, that as we begin this new chapter in the book of Matthew, that you will reveal to us, Father, your word, that you will work upon our hearts and do your perfect work. And we confess to you this morning that we are in great need of you. Lord, the longer we live, the more we are a Christian, the more we realize how dependent we are upon you each and every day. Father, we confess our sins to you this morning. We confess our faults and our failures. We confess, Lord, that this morning we may be distracted by some things from this past week. And we pray that in this moment, you would help us to push all those things aside and focus supremely upon you. Lord, we glorify you this morning. Lord, for you are worthy to be praised. We are thankful that you are not some distant God who sits in a lofty place far away from us, but Father, you are close by at hand to us. And at any moment we can speak and cry out to you and that you hear our prayers. We are thankful this morning that Jesus is a ruling and a reigning king, that he has not been defeated, but that he has all of his enemies under his feet. And that, Father, we have nothing in this world to fear. But we serve a king who rules and reigns victorious. We ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Matthew 24 is our text this morning. If you want to go ahead and make your way there. Matthew 24, where... Uh, This morning, we're going to read the the first uh, 14 verses, uh, but spend the bulk of our time in the first three um, as we make an introduction uh, to this series that we'll be looking at probably uh, over the next four to six weeks, depending upon how uh, everything plays out. Uh, But if you found your way there, Matthew chapter 24, I'm going to invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Jesus came out from the temple, was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. He said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. The nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. You can be seated.
And today we begin what will be, as I said, a several-week series on Matthew chapter 24. It is a chapter uh, that is filled with language that has often been debated inside and outside of the church. Now, despite disagreements, there's a lot of agreement on what this passage is about, that it speaks about uh, eschatological um, eschatological um, areas of theology. Now, what that means is, is eschatology is an idea, it's a view of the world and of history that shows that God is moving towards a goal, uh, that, that the consummation of, of His judgment and salvation is a plan that God has, God has laid out from the very beginning. So it doesn't necessarily refer to something that's going to happen in the distant future. It's just talking about God's plan and how He is making those things to proceed to unfold. Now, where the disagreement comes in in Matthew 24 and and places like the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, is the specific timeline of these events. Now, when we talk about an area of theology such as eschatology, it's important to remember that theology is oftentimes categorized in in, in view of tiers. Uh, So you have first-tier issues, second-tier issues, and so on. Now, first-tier issues are those uh, which are necessary for saving faith. You have to believe these things in order to be a Christian, in order to be orthodox. Uh, these are things like uh, the, the, the Trinity and the virgin birth and God's uh, his plan of redemption and Jesus coming and living a perfect and sinless life, dying upon the cross as a substitutionary atonement for sin, saving faith, that you have to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. These are first-tier issues. Now, second-tier issues uh, are issues that are important, but they don't decide faith, but they do affect the ability of individuals to worship together. Uh, this would be maybe like baptism would be a good example of this. Uh, as Baptists, we believe that baptism is by immersion. Now, uh, Pastor Ben and Wes and I, we have brothers in Christ who are Presbyterians, and Presbyterians practice covenant baptism, where they baptize infants not as a, a demonstration of saving faith, but as a demonstration of the covenant family of God. Now, we would disagree with them on that issue, but we would still call them brothers in Christ. But that would also mean that because that's a second-tier issue, we wouldn't be able to really to worship together on a regular basis. You know, we couldn't be members of the same church if we believed in two different kinds or two different views of baptism. Now, this is also um, a second-tier issue. It could also uh, revolve around church government um, and different things in that example as well. Now, third-tier issues is where we find eschatology because they're issues that are important, but they're not divisive. Uh, inside the church, you can have brothers and sisters who worship together every Sunday morning. You can have pastors who are on staff together. You can have groups of people who work together uh, in the church and differ on how they think these things are going to unfold in the end. Because let's be honest this morning, there's a lot of people who are very respected on all different sides of the issue here. Um, And as one person points out, somebody is going to be wrong and somebody's going to be right. And we won't know until all those things take place. Now, there are some people even categorize a fourth-tier issue, and fourth-tier issues are things that are opinion-based. That's music styles, the color of the church carpet, and the age-old question, did Adam have a belly button? Those are fourth-tier issues that we don't really have to fight over. But now, when it comes to eschatology, many of you this morning may not even be aware of the different areas of thought when it comes to, um, it comes to eschatology. But there are three that are the most popular views. And now, when I say there are three, you need to understand that even inside these three, there are many subsets of viewpoints when it comes to where people hold to about what they think is going to happen. But the three most popular are premillennial. Uh, and premillennial, you have historic premillennial, and you have dispensational premillennial. Uh, you have all millennial, and you have postmillennial. Now, 
most of us in this room probably grew up uh, holding to a premillennial view, and of that premillennial view, it was probably a dispensational premillennial view. Uh, this was oftentimes taught to you by your pastors, but it was also the viewpoint that was prevailed specifically through the 1970s and 80s, through men like uh, Hal Lindsey, Jack Van Impey. You get into the 90s, you had the Left Behind series. Uh, and in, really, if you look back, and some of you who are old enough to remember, in the 1970s and 80s, there were seemingly hundreds of books uh, on the end times, uh, movies and all of these things that were made, and all of them holding to that dispensational premillennial viewpoint. And in fact, when I grew up in the church, I never knew that there was any other viewpoint about eschatology or the end times besides a dispensational premillennial view. And when I read the book of Revelation, to be honest, it overwhelmed me, right? You have beasts, and you have dragons, and you have four-headed creatures and six, you have all of these things that are taking place in the book of Revelation. And you look at this and you say, what does all this mean? And especially from the dispensational viewpoint, they, they try to fit all of these, uh, these images into certain figureheads or nations. And what's interesting over the course of history is a lot of that has had to change. Back in the 1970s, you know, the USSR was always one that was pointed to as this was going to be the dominant figure uh, in the end times. But then what happened? The USSR fell. And so then, okay, well, maybe we were wrong. We have to change this viewpoint. So the book of Revelation just really was just overwhelming to me as I thought about it. And even as a pastor, I, I'd read the book. I'd read it several times. Uh, but, but I never began to study it more because I just really wasn't sure where I stood. And, and, and just the, the overwhelmingness of it just kind of kept me away for a while. But last year, I decided that I wanted to look more seriously at this area, specifically because I knew that eventually we were going to be getting to Matthew 24. And the language there, uh, depending upon where your viewpoint is in eschatology, uh, bears a lot on what you would interpret, the book of Revelation and other places like that. So I began to do some more in-depth study. And the more I did, I realized that the viewpoint that I held was based more on familiarity and more on comfort than it was on biblical clarity. So as we look at this chapter, and actually chapter 25 as well, we're going to be doing so with a, with a concerted attempt to do so with clear biblical interpretation. Now, as we do that, you may find that you, hold some, you may hold to some of the same positions that I held to. And some of what I may say may be the first time you've ever heard this. And so I'm going to ask that as we go through this, that you bear patience with me. Uh, and I'm going to try to do my very best to, to open up the Word of God and allow the Word of God to speak for itself. Uh, I'm also going to be uh, providing a list of resources uh, for you to take. And you can look at those resources if you have questions along the way. And, and obviously, at any point in time, I'm always available uh, to answer questions uh, that you may have as we go through uh, this series through Matthew 24. Now, I want to be clear that this series is not an attempt to convert anyone. I'm not trying to say that you have to hold to the same position. If you're firm in your position and you can prove it biblically, then, then more power to you. I have lots of friends, some premillennial, some all-millennial, some post-millennial, who are very con convinced of their positions, and I love them and respect them. And so... With that being said, I want us to look at this chapter and begin to open it up in such a sense to say, what is actually happening here? Because this is the important part, right? We've talked a lot about in sermons that we've preached that one of the most important parts when it comes to a sermon is the context of the sermon. What's happening in the period in time in which it has been spoken? Because when Jesus is talking to somebody, what is he trying to say? 
What does he mean by what is he trying to say? And the context is not how do we view that in 21st century, but how would they have understood that in the first century? How would they have understood what Jesus was telling them? How would they have interpreted it? Because that is the most important part. Now, in chapters uh, 22 and 23, Jesus has been speaking and, and speaking very boldly and very sternly not only to the people and disciples, but especially in chapter 23, most specifically to the Pharisees, we find Jesus using some language that we really have never seen him use before. Being so forceful and so direct with the Pharisees, it's important to understand that because what he's doing is he's laying out this, this picture of what's getting ready to happen. He, he's telling the Pharisees directly and his disciples as a subset of that because they're standing there listening to him that something is getting ready to change. Judgment is coming upon the Pharisees. Judgment is coming upon the temple and judgment is coming upon the nation of Israel. Why? Because they have rejected the Messiah. God had sent the promised one to them and they had chosen because of, of their position, they wanted to stay, continuing to do what they were going to do, reject the Messiah, and so Jesus is telling them, destruction is coming upon you. Now, look at verse uh, uh, 38 of chapter 23. Because this speaks a lot to what's getting ready to be spoken from the mouth of Jesus. He says in verse 38, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now remember, chapter 23, he's inside the temple. He's in the court of the temple. He's, he's teaching. He's preaching. He's, he's sharing all of these things. And he had just been, you know, ben, Pastor Ben did an excellent job of, of walking through those eight woes where he rebuked the Pharisees for the way that they had practiced religion, the way that they had misled the people, the way that they had, had, had corrupted the word of God, and the way that they had rejected the Messiah. And so as he's still inside the temple, he's lamenting over what has happened that he had wanted to come and to shelter them and to protect them and to keep them. But because of their rejection of him, he says, your house is being left to you desolate. It's a proclamation of judgment. It's a proclamation of what is going to happen. And he says, this whole thing is going to come undone. I want you to notice the setting here. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus came out from the temple. and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, again, Jesus had just been teaching inside the temple, and he had told them about this the house being left desolate. Now, this provoked a question in the eyes of, of the disciples, right? Because the disciples, again, they, they believed Jesus was the Messiah. And we've talked often about the struggle that the, the disciples had with understanding how the Messiah was going to rule and reign. Because of their context as Jewish people, they believed that the Messiah was going to come in victory immediately, uh, that he was going to establish his earthly kingdom as soon as he arrived upon the scene. So the whole idea of a suffering Messiah, of a Messiah who was going to be put to death, just made no sense in, in the context of their mind. So they struggled with this. And so even though they began to understand that more and more, when Jesus began to talk about the house of Israel being left desolate, the first question upon their mind would be, well, if the house is desolate, then where will the Messiah reign? Where, where, where will the Messiah rule when he comes? If, if all of this is destroyed, where will he go? And so it's important to understand the setting and the events. We need to know that when Jesus spoke these words here in the early part of the first century, that by 70 AD, all of these things would be accomplished. In 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed. 
And Jesus' prophetic words there in verse 38 would come to be fulfilled. Now, as we talk about this passage, it's important to remember that as Christians that we, we do not live our lives as Christians in isolation. And what I mean by that is that we don't just read the Bible for ourselves and, and interpret it for ourselves, but we, we do so amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the reason we gather here on Sunday morning, that we can open the Bible together and be instructed together. And it's the reason we have classes in Sunday school where we can get together and discuss God's Word because it's important for us to not be isolated as we study the Bible, but to be together so that we can help one another as iron sharpens iron. And so as we talked about that, I wanted to look back at some viewpoints of Christians in the past. Because what we know and believe today, when we talk about our faith as Baptists, what we know as Baptists is not something that each one of us just individually decided, but it's something that has been passed down to us through the generations. It was something that was first given to us by the Holy Spirit in the canon of Scripture, and then it has been built upon by countless faithful men and women who have studied and read and lived and even died for these beliefs but they come from the context of the Bible. So the viewpoints that we're going to be discussing as we look at chapter 24 are not only found, I believe, in the Scriptures, but they've also been shared historically by many Christians, both well-known and layperson alike throughout the centuries. And so I wanted to share just a few quotes this morning just to kind of, again, set the setting of what we're going to be looking at in Matthew chapter 24. This is written by John Lightfoot in 1859. He says, Hence it appears plain enough that the foregoing verses are not to be understood of the last judgment, but as we said, of the destruction of Jerusalem. There were some disciples, particularly John, who lived to see these things come to pass. With Matthew 16, 28, compare John 21, 22. And there were some alive at the time when Christ spoke these things that lived until the city was destroyed. Then John Gill, a very well-known commentator, was one of the pastors uh, at, the, at the, uh, the church in England where Charles Spurgeon became to pastor later on. And he preceded, uh, or, or, uh, yeah, preceded Spurgeon there at the, at the tabernacle. He says, This is a full and clear proof that not anything that is said before relates to the second coming of Christ, the day of judgment and the end of the world, but that all belongs to the coming of the Son of Man and the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Jewish state. So what we're going to understand and see through our study of Matthew 24 is that Jesus is not referring to events that are going to happen a long time in the future. He's not talking about thousands of years from now, but he's talking about an event that's going to happen in about 40 years after his death when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So we talked about the setting, but I want you to next notice the prophecy. This is where we get to dig into a little deeper and, and again, set the context of what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, Jesus is pointing out the temple here. And in fact, it already told us that in verse 1, the disciples came out and to point out all the temple buildings to him, right? Because the temple was an astonishing edifice. It was a majestic building. And in fact, both Mark and Luke re refer to this, this event because it says in, in Mark that as he was going out of the temples, one of the disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and then in Luke, it says that while they were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Now, why do you think that the disciples would take this moment? Now, Jesus had been to the temple on numerous occasions. 
They had been there several times. Why in this particular moment do you think that the disciples would stop Jesus as they're walking out and take the time to point out the temple building to him? Well, it was because of what he had said in verse 38. He said, your house is going to be left unto you desolate. The, the disciples clearly understood what Jesus was trying to get across there. That all of this was going to be destroyed. That all of this was going to go away. And so they were pointing out to Jesus, Jesus, look at how beautiful this building is. Look at how glorious it is. Look at how splendorous it is. Now, the temple that was there in Jerusalem at the time was actually the third Jewish temple. It had been constructed by Herod the Great around 20 BC. That temple had replaced the second temple that had been built by Zerubbabel and recorded in Ezra chapter 2. And that one had replaced the original temple, which was built by Solomon. You can see that in 1 Kings chapter 6. That temple had been destroyed in 587 BC. So the third temple now is what we're talking about. And the temple was considered one of the wonders of the world. It was built with granite and marble, decorated with gold and precious tapestries and precious stones. And and it's really hard for us as, as Christians and I think as Americans to really understand how majestic and grandiose and beautiful that this building was. Uh, because we really don't have anything today that comes anywhere close in terms of architecture uh, of what the temple would have looked like. Uh, really, to, to try to, to make a, a good comparison, you'd have to go to somewhere like Greece and look at some of the ruins that are there. You know, and even though uh, you know, thousands of years later, these columns still stand and the beauty of those buildings are still there, they still pale in comparison to the construction and the beauty of the temple. As you think about this large building covered with gold and precious stones, and just this thing that was the, it was the heartbeat of the Jewish faith and of Jerusalem. It was the pinnacle of everything that they did, this wonderful, beautiful, glorious building. Josephus, uh, famed Jewish writer, historian, wrote of the temple. He said, in that temple were several stones which were 45 cubits in length, five cubits in height, and six in breadth. Now, if you didn't bring your cubit to inches uh, calculator today, that's 70 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 8 feet high. Now, you think about that. You think about a stone, one solid piece of rock, 70 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 8 feet high. This was the type of construction that made up the temple in Jerusalem. So here they're pointing out all these things. And Jesus, again, now they had pointed out the temple to him, and now he's pointing out the temple to them. And he says, look around and see all of this. Not just the temple, but everything that it stands for. Because the temple, again, stood for the entirety of the Jewish faith. Because without the temple, there was no Jewish faith. Without the temple, with a place to do sacrifices and a place to carry out all the commands that God had given in the Old Testament, there was no validity to the Jewish faith. They had nothing that they could do. It was an empty ritual. And Jesus points out all these things. He says, look at all of this. Look at the glory. Look at the splendor. Look at the majesty. But then notice what he says. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Luke records it as this way. And as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. Now when Jesus spoke these words, there was not any event that the disciples could have fathomed in their mind that would have been more unlikely or more impossible than this. 
Those things in Jerusalem were great in a large scale. Even though they were under the control of the Romans, they were in a time of peace. There was no war going on. There was no battles happening. It was a time of peace. There was great uh, uh, um, success in the city of Jerusalem. But as I said earlier, just a few short years later in AD 70, Jerusalem was sieged by the Romans under the command of Titus. Now, to refer to Josephus again, because Josephus fell into the hands of the Romans and he firsthand witnessed the destruction. He, in fact, would go back and forth between the Romans to the Jews in order to try to take messages back and forth to them. And he writes about the destruction of the temple in this way. He said that Titus gave orders that they should now demolish the whole city and the temple except for three towers, which he reserved standing. He didn't want the entire temple destroyed. He wanted actually to preserve a portion of the temple. He didn't want to see it gone because, again, it was this beautiful structure. And so even though the Romans were sieging the city, they wanted to leave or he wanted to leave this temple there. He says, but for the rest of the wall, it was laid so completely even with the ground by those who dug it up from the foundation that there was nothing left to make those believe who came afterwards that had ever been inhabited. The destruction of Jerusalem was fierce and strong and complete and total. That it looked like there had never even been inhabitants there. This is the kind of destruction that came upon the city in A.D. 70. Now again, it was recorded that Titus wanted to preserve the temple, and so that as the Jews themselves actually set fire to the porticos of the temple, and then one of the Roman soldiers who had not been given a command because of his anger against the Jews actually threw a firebrand in through the temple, and that was the final straw, and the temple began to burn and was destroyed. Now Titus again, in his desire to save the temple, issued a command to try to extinguish the fire, but to no avail because of the Roman soldiers. Their hatred of the Jews was so great that they ensured that not only was the temple burned to the ground, but it was that it was utterly destroyed. So Jesus says, look at all of this and understand and know that a day is soon coming when not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. This will all be completely destroyed. Now, this is where we begin to become into an area of disagreement with some other views on the end times because some people would say that, again, Jesus is not talking about what happened here in AD 70, but he's talking about a future event. And no, this is where we come to the, the line of thought that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. I'm going to share something with you this morning that you may not be aware of, but did you know this morning that there's nowhere in the Scriptures that says that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt? It's not one place. Not one place in the scriptures that says that the temple is going to be rebuilt. But the reason that some people hold to that line of thinking is because if they view these things as a future occurrence and the temple will be destroyed and, and other places where they talk about the scripture talks about the destruction of the temple, which again, I believe referred to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But if you hold to those things as being future events, that there's going to be a future destruction of the temple, what do you have to have? You have to have a temple. And so they read into that to say, okay, well, if we have to have a temple to be destroyed, there has to be a reconstruction of that temple. But again, nowhere in the scriptures does it say that the temple will be rebuilt. Now, if we go to Luke chapter 19, I want you to listen to what Jesus says, because again, Jesus is referring to this. He, he's using this language to talk about what's going to happen. And he says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. 
And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Well, what does that sound like? Well, it's very clear what that sounds like. It sounds like the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Jesus here is using very specific language. And even though they would not be able to fathom it at their time, they're going to come and see it in their generation before they die. So we talked about the setting and we talked about the prophecy, but I want you to first, I mean, thirdly now, notice the question. Look at what Jesus, look at what happens here in verse 3. It says that as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. Mark tells us that the disciples who came to him were Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And they ask what is an understandable question. So Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is east of the temple across the Kidron Valley. And from this vantage point, it was a high mountain. They would have been able to see not only the city of Jerusalem and the temple, but, but everything that encompassed the Jewish faith. It would have been a, a grand picture to look at. Uh, because as they're looking at this, and they're, the disciples are just going over in their mind everything that Jesus said to them, they ask this natural question, well, Jesus... When is this all going to happen? You said that the house is going to be desolate. You said that not one stone will be left upon another. The most natural question that they could say is, Jesus, when is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Luke chapter 21 Again, verse 20 says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. This is one of the most pivotal keys to understanding Matthew 24 is the timing. When does all this happen? Does it happen now or does it happen in the future? Did this event happen in the time in which Jesus lived or when his disciples lived? Or does it happen to some group of people in the near future? And it all centers around one word. And that word is generation. Look there in Matthew 24, but skip down to verse 34. Because this is, again, where we set all these things into context. Look at what Jesus says. He says, near the end of the passage, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now this is Matthew's tenth use of the word geno, which is the word for generation. And the word generation means the group of people... Uh, to whom Jesus is speaking. If you see that word genus used, it's talking about generation. It's the group of people who are living at that time. Uh, so if I were to use that in, in the context today, I would say this generation. So everybody would know that when I say this generation will not pass away, that I'm talking about the people who are gathered inside this room, talking about an event that all of us would see before we die. Now, what's interesting in, in this passage, and again, I, I don't... I don't say these things this morning in order to be, to be hyperly critical of other individuals, but I think we need to give the Scripture the clear reading of the text because whenever Matthew uses this word, he always uses that word, Gina, which means to generation. Now, there is a, a, a different variation of that word, which is genos, which refers to race. So we see that used in other places in the Scripture. 
So if you see genos used, it's talking about a race of people. So you would say the Jewish people, or the, the American people, or uh, the, the Islamic people. You're using, talking about a race or a group of people. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here in Matthew 24, nor is it the word he uses all throughout the book of Matthew. But the reason that oftentimes people refer to what's happening in Matthew 24 as events occurring in the future is because people will say, that Jesus here is not meaning the generation of people who are gathered here before him, but a future race or a future type of people somewhere in the future, which I don't believe is a fair interpretation of the text. Because nowhere in this passage does Jesus switch his line of thinking, right? He's talking to his disciples throughout the entirety of Matthew 24. And he's talked to them before about this generation, meaning the people who were gathered there standing to him listening. And he's using the same word here. Matthew records it using the same word, Gina, which means generation. So why would we assume that all of a sudden the word that Jesus has used over and over to mean one thing now suddenly in this one verse means something different? It's not a fair use interpretation of the text. John Nolan pointed out, he says, though the use of the term has a range of emphasis, it consistently refers to the time span of a single human generation. So many who hold to a future generation there in that verse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, excuse me, uh, verse 24, uh, 24, 34, have to do some pretty serious gymnastics, I think, to get around a clear and plain reading of the text. Now, the reason we talk about that verse, which is much later on in the passage, is because we're going to be referring and speaking of this word quite often, uh, because it helps us to understand exactly the timeline of when all of these events are going to take place. If Jesus says... This generation, those who are hearing me speak right now, will not pass away until all these things take place. What does that help us to understand? Is that all these things are going to happen and did happen before the generation of people, the disciples, passed away and before they died. There's also in this passage, Jesus' use of the second person plural, you. I encourage you when you go home tonight... Uh, to take your Bible and look at Matthew 24 and see how many times Jesus uses the word you. We can see it very often here in the first verses that we've just read. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you. Jesus answered and said in verse 4, See to it that no no one misleads you. Verse 6, You will hear of wars. You are not frightened, but they will deliver you to tribulations. We see Jesus use this word over and over and over and over again throughout of Matthew 24. If, as some people say, Jesus meant a future generation, it would have made more sense for Jesus to say, they. They will not pass away until all these things come to place. They will see these things happen. They will see these things occurring. But Jesus very specifically uses the word you. Now again, imagine that Jesus here in this moment is not even speaking to a massive group of people. He's speaking to an intimate circle of his disciples. And he says, truly, I say to you, these men who I have trusted and who have followed after me, I am giving you clear instruction here on what these things look like. You've asked me a question and I'm giving you the answer. Jesus had spoken earlier in Matthew 21. And again, he's he's referring to this end of the Jewish faith, this end of the Jewish culture, this end of, of Judaism as a whole. And he says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. 
And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now listen to this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. So we see the same type of language, don't we? Don't we? Jesus said, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And the, just, the Pharisees clearly understood that he was talking about them. He's not talking about some future generation. He wasn't talking about a group of people in the far distant future. He was talking about them. So the same thing is occurring here when Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, do you not understand? He's talking to them. He's talking about something that they are going to see. F.F. Bruce put it this way. This phrase, this generation, is found too often on Jesus' lips in this literal sense for us to suppose that it suddenly takes on a different meaning in the dating we are now examining. He said, moreover, if a description of the end time would have been intended, he said that generation would have been a more natural way of referring to it than this generation. So again, the question we're asking is when Jesus speaks these words to his disciples, does he mean them or does he mean a group of people in the distant future? Because he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until what? Until all these things take place. D.A. Carson said, this generation can only with the greatest difficulty be made to mean anything other than that generation living when Jesus spoke. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 16, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We're going to talk about that idea of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom in just a few moments. But the second question that they ask, not only is the timing, when will these things happen, but they say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So with the timing discussed, we must talk about what does coming mean? Well, your coming, or the idea, comes from the Greek word parousia. And the word is often translated coming, but it really literally means presence. One commentator said, in referring to the idea of presence, and we look at this word used throughout the Bible, he says the first meaning was the mysterious presence of God. Particularly when the power of God was revealed in healing, people would suddenly be aware of a supernatural and powerful presence. And the obvious word for this was parousia. And Josephus sometimes uses that word when he's talking about Yahweh coming to the rescue of Israel. And he continues, he says, The second meaning emerges when a person of high rank makes a visit to a subject, uh, particularly when a king or emperor visits a colony or provenance. The word for such a visit is royal presence or parousia. In neither setting, we note, obviously, but importantly, is there the slightest suggestion of anybody flying around on a cloud, nor is there any hint of the imminent collapse or destruction of the space-time universe. So we see this word used throughout the New Testament to talk about the presence of God, to talk about the presence actually even of Jesus in, in the midst of events. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18? For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. The parousia, the, the presence, the coming of God, the presence of coming of Jesus in the midst of that. Now, when we read Matthew chapter 18, when we talk about the presence of Jesus, we understand Jesus is not present physically in the midst of that occurrence. Matthew chapter 18 is talking about the context of church discipline. When a church uh, does discipline and uses those things in the proper way, he's saying, I'm there with you. I'm present with you, overseeing and, and super, uh, supervising those things. But we understand that Jesus is not saying that he's going to be there physically. He's there in spirit. 
And even in Matthew chapter 28, he says, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus' presence is with that parousia, that presence of Jesus. So when Jesus comes in destruction on Jerusalem, his presence was manifested. He wasn't there physically, but his presence was being manifested in that he was accomplishing everything that he said was going to happen there in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The end of everything was coming to pass because of the Jews' rejection of the Messiah, their house was going to be left desolate. He said, I'm going to come and in my presence... And I'm going to see to it that all of these things are brought to an end. Because that's one of the things that some people point out. Remember that verse we read earlier, the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And oftentimes people, when they're looking at this verse, they say, well, this has to refer to a future event because it talks about the Son of Man coming, His his coming in His kingdom. Well, again, we have to understand. We have to look at the language. When Jesus talks about this, that some of you who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now think about that. Jesus told them, there will some of you who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. We have to either say two things. Either one, that Jesus was, not talk- that Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple and His coming and His presence, the parousia, in, in AD 70, or Jesus was lying. Because He says, some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So if He's going to come and he's going to be truthful, then those things had to have happened in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, disciples also ask about the end of the age. Now, the word here used, it means age, and it does not mean the end of the world. It's, 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 it's aeon, which means age, and not cosmos, which is the end of the world. So in many places in Scripture, the use of the word last days does not talk about the period of the end of time, but talks about the last days of the Old Covenant. The era of the old covenant was coming to an end because of the work of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? He came to perfectly fulfill the law. So now we're no longer under the old covenant, but we're under the new covenant. So the last days is the end of that old covenant passing away and the new covenant coming into place. Now listen to this. Because what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is what is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is standing here upon the Mount of Olives. And what Jesus is going to do in these next few verses that we read this morning, verses 4 through 14, is continue to answer the question. Because they ask him not only when will these things happen, but what will the signs of these things be? And so in verses 4 through 14, Jesus gives to us the signs of his coming and the signs of the end of the age. Now, I want to read those again to you this morning because I believe it's important for us to understand them. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places uh, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. They will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now, at a precursory reading of these verses, perhaps 
Many of you think, well, these are, again, descriptions of things that have yet to happen. But as we look over the next few weeks, what I hope to unveil to us is that every single one of these things that Jesus talks about here in verses 4 through 14 and the continuation of chapter 24 were all accomplished there in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Back in 2007, a pastor by the name of Doug Wilson went on a debate tour uh, with a renowned atheist by the name of Christopher Hitchens. Now, if you've ever heard of Christopher Hitchens, he sadly has passed uh, now uh, before ever professing faith in Christ. Uh, it's a very tragic situation. But Christopher Hitchens was one of the most uh, uh, venomous and, and vile atheists uh, that were out there. Uh, he spoke on lots of college campuses, wrote, lots of, wrote a lot of books, uh, and was one of the ones that when you talked about the belief of atheism, he was one of the who was always referred to at the top and as the spokesman for I say that line of, of belief because atheism, although they deny the existence of a God, atheism is their God. Um, Pastor Wilson and Christopher Hitchens went on a debate tour. Uh, and that debate tour, it was cataloged in a documentary that is called Collision. And it's really well worth your time to watch. I would encourage you, you can find it on YouTube and just look it up. But in, in the middle of one debate, Christopher Hitchens references Matthew 24 in an effort to discredit Wilson and discredit Christianity. And Hitchens' argument is one that since Jesus uh, predicted in Matthew 24, 34, that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, he said, well, since all these things didn't take place, he says, well, Jesus is a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, then he's not the Messiah. And if he's not a Messiah, then Christianity is, is futile. Because Hitchens, astonishingly so, as a man who was intelligent as he was, only understood a, a dispensational premillennial view of the reading of Scripture. And so he was taken aback when, when Wilson surprised him and said that not only was Jesus not a liar, but that all of these things had perfectly been fulfilled by the time of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And Hitchens had no response because he had never heard that or never understood that before. And so again, over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at this. Now, again, I can imagine that some of you this morning are... are, are your minds are, are circling this morning because you've never heard this. Now, I want to make a few things clear. That in this understanding of Matthew 24, we are not saying that Jesus isn't coming again. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming. He's, his, he, we don't know the time. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. But we firmly believe that Jesus is coming again as the Scriptures promise and have foretold. All we're seeing is, is that sometimes some of the things that have been read into that return have been made to be forced into an idea uh, or a, a view of that end times, which is a little more incorrect. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a lot of different things. We're going to talk about different things with, with the rapture and with the tribulation and with different things like that to come to, I think, a more clear understanding of what Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand. Now, the purpose of this, that I believe that an understanding this way of what Jesus is saying gives us a much better hope of what it means to be a Christian who serves a ruling and a reigning king. Because I believe that the perspective that we're going to be looking at, and I can't remember if I said this at the beginning, but we're going to be looking at this from a post-millennial perspective. And a post-millennial perspective just means that 
that these things were accomplished in AD 70, that Christ is returning in, in his second coming. But in the intermediate period between those times is, is what we would refer to as when the thousand years uh, of the, the millennial reign is. It's not a literal thousand years. It's, it's a time, a period of time in which God is accomplishing his work and his purpose. Now, what's going to be different about this is that most of the time when you talk about eschatology, you talk about the end times, it's a very doom and gloom type situation. Uh, the premillennial perspective is one that the, that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then there's a rapture, then there's even worse tribulation, and then Jesus Christ returns. All millennial perspective is that the world will get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Christ returns. No tribulation, um, uh, no rapture, just the return of Christ. But the postmillennial perspective is that the gospel will continue to do its perfect work in the world. That because the gospel is powerful, and, and this is part of the key reason why I, I've come to hold this position. It is not because what is 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 because as we've studied through the gospels, what do we see the gospel doing? We see the gospel changing people, right? Not only in the book of Matthew, but as we've studied through the epistles and we've studied through other books, we see the gospel changes people, changes people's hearts. And when people's hearts are changed, then their families are changed. And when their families are changed, then their towns are changed. And when their towns are changed, then their countries are changed. And we see that it's most maybe most prolifically in the book of Acts, right? Because we see the gospel being preached and entire cities coming to faith in Christ, temples being put out of business because people are no longer practicing uh, idolatrous faith. They're burning their idols and they're turning to Christ and the world is being transformed. So why as Christians would we relegate the transforming power of the gospel to a period of time 2,000 years ago? Do we not believe that the gospel can still transform lives today? And if we do, do we not believe that the transformed lives would continue to grow and continue to be successful? So the postmillennial perspective is that while we were living in the, while we are living in this church age, this thousand year, this millennium, again is symbolic, but that things are going to continue to improve. And we're not saying that the world is going to get perfect, but we're saying we're going to see a continual spread of the gospel. The gospel is going to continue to grow and impact the world in a positive way until everyone that God has called will be saved. And then Jesus Christ will return and take home his church. Now, we have to be careful when we view eschatology to not view eschatology in the light of culture. Because this is where Christians have, have fallen in the past. Because they viewed their eschatology in the, in the event of culture of what's happening right now. You might be astonished to, to understand that prior to World War I and World War II, almost every Christian held to the post-millennial perspective. They, but what happened was they allowed World War I and World War II to change their mind. Because those events were so catastrophic, many people began to say, well, this can't be right, right? The world can't be getting better if we're having a world war and then we're having a second world war. So they began to, to veer away into other lines of thinking. But that was my warning. We have to be careful to not interpret the scripture in light of the cultural context in which we live. Because what's happening in America right now does not change God's plan. What's going to be happening in America 50 years from now does not change God's plan. God's plan is God's plan. And if we look back at the history of the church from, from the Bible until now, you know what we see? We see ebbs and flows. We see the book of Acts when the church was growing and the church was doing wonderfully well, growing by thousands of people uh, almost on a daily occurrence, but they were under persecution, right? And then a period of time came and, and that, that ebbed a little bit. And then we see the, if we move a little further forward, we see the great awakenings that happened in America. 
But you know what happened prior to the Great Awakenings in America? There was a period of time in the United States when our Baptist forefathers were being put in stocks and whipped and beaten in the public square here in the United States. And then the Great Awakening happened. And God moved in power. And so we see those things happening. God is not stopping the spread of the gospel. God is continuing to move forward. And just because right now in America things look dire does not mean that the end is going to be tomorrow. That Jesus could return tomorrow. But it may be another 2,000 years before Jesus comes back. And we need to be understanding of that. But the difference is, is that our priority as Christians is not to be concerned when Jesus will return, but just to know that He will. But our concern is to be faithful to do what He has called us to do, and that is to preach the gospel. And if we preach the gospel on a daily basis... And you're going to hear more about this in the coming weeks and, 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 and in fact, in the, in the coming years, is that we believe as Christians it is our job to influence this world. It is our job not only just to be Christians, but we should be looking for opportunities as Christians to have that influence outside of the church. We want some of you to run for public office. We want some of you to be school teachers. We want some of you to, to look for opportunities to start businesses, to hire employees so that you can spread the gospel through the people that have, you have working for you. We want to see the gospel spreading in every facet of society because that is how we see the kingdom of God continue to grow and to continue to spread in this world. And with that viewpoint, this is what I love about the post-millennial perspective of eschatology is that we're not sitting in fear waiting for things to get worse and worse. We understand that things could get worse and could get better. It's just the ebb and flow of time and God's perfect plan of how He's unveiling the world. But if we believe that God is accomplishing His purpose, we have much to hope for. Because we are victorious in the end. Christ is a ruling and a reigning King. I pointed out to Pastor Ben uh, earlier this week. You look all throughout the Old Testament and you see all this language of, of God as a ruling and a reigning king. It was something that the, the, the Jewish people took hope in. No matter what they suffered through, they knew that they had a God who ruled and reigned over everything. And as Christians in the 21st century, we have that same God. He rules and reigns. In fact, the scripture says that Jesus is sitting, ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of God. Jesus is not waiting until his second coming before he rules and reigns. He's ruling and reigning over the world right now. And that gives us great hope as believers because we know that we serve a God who's in complete power. Nothing is happening outside of His control. Nothing is happening outside of His will. And so if we are faithful to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel, we will see the gospel's work change the world. And that, I believe, is the point of what Jesus is going to unveil to us through this passage and through the coming weeks, that His great hope is that the gospel will be proclaimed. Now, the Jewish faith, there's a destruction and a, and a fall coming upon the city of Jerusalem. And that should help us to be clear to understand that all of these things are passed away. Jesus is pointing on this is no longer needed. Now, what we need and what we put our faith and hope and trust in is what He has come and what He has accomplished on our behalf. We have much to long for, we have much to do, and we have much to hope in. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank You for this text. And we thank You for Your instruction here. And Lord, we, as we look at this over the coming weeks, Father, I pray that, Lord, not only will we be aware of what this destruction means of the temple, uh, of Judaism, of this bringing an end to desolation to the house of, of, of Jerusalem, but Father, we will also be encouraged by what this means for us as believers. Uh, Lord, that we will see that through the truth of your word, the hope that we have in you, 
and the hope that we have for the work that we are to accomplish. And Lord, that there is much to look forward to as believers. And we ask all these things today in Jesus' mighty name.